So starting from verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, So now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. A big thank you to Gillian for reading that passage from the second half of Romans chapter 6 for us. Uh, Let's pray before we go any further. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the book of Romans. Father, we thank you that so many, many people down through the centuries have found it so helpful uh, that it has helped them to understand the good news uh, of your love. And Father, as we look at this part of Romans this morning, Heavenly Father, we pray that we'll be informed, but more than informed, we pray that we'll be excited as we realize just how much you have done for us and how much you want to do for us as we follow you as a Lord and Master. Heavenly Father, help us to understand this passage. Help us to be excited. Amen. Amen. Um, This morning we're returning after quite a long break for Christmas uh, to a series of sermons we started last autumn in the book of Romans. Now, I was actually looking back, and it's actually the best part of two months since we actually uh, started looking at the first half of Romans chapter 6. And given that, frankly, there's only one sensible thing to do, only one sensible way to start this sermon, and that's to actually remind ourselves of, of the story so far. In Romans, Paul is talking about the most exciting thing he knows. He's talking about the good news, the good news of salvation that God has made possible through Jesus. And up to this point, Paul has been talking about basically two things. First of all, he's been talking about the reasons why people need to be saved, why salvation is necessary. Why each one of us needs to be rescued from the consequences of our sinfulness for the wrong things that we keep on doing, the things that displease and distress God. And following that, he's gone on to tell us that, yes, it is possible for us to have that rescue. It is possible for us to be forgiven. It's possible for us to be, the word that Paul uses is justified in God's sight. Now, this is not because God is indulgent and easygoing and and really couldn't be terribly bothered about this. 
Neither is it because it's possible for human beings to work incredibly hard uh, and perhaps by working incredibly hard persuade God that we're actually a lot better than we are. No, it's, it's neither of those reasons. It's possible to be forgiven. It's possible to know salvation. It's possible to be justified in God's sight only through what God has done through the sacrifice, through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary. And we can access this salvation through putting our trust and our belief in Jesus. We can be justified, made right in God's sight, through faith in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And this is summed up right at the end of chapter 5 where Paul writes, Just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But from chapter 6, Paul goes on to basically say, so what happens next? For those of us who have been forgiven, for those of us who have been saved, for those of us who have been justified by faith, um, what do we do next? What sort of life should we live? Uh, up until the end of chapter 5, Paul has helped us to understand how we can be justified by faith. But from chapter 6 onwards, he's talking about what God wants to do in us because we have been justified by faith. Being forgiven, having our sins washed away is not the end of God's work. It's only the beginning. And the first thing that we need to understand is that as forgiven people, as justified people, we just can't carry on in the same way as if, as if nothing had happened. God's plan is not just to save us, but to change us, to make us better, to make us more like Christ. If you want a long word for this, and I'm only going to use this word once, I hope, the long word is sanctification. But what it basically means is taking us forward to, to be more like Jesus, more like God's plan and purpose and, and desire for us. You know, you sometimes... You used to see it a lot. You perhaps don't see it quite so much these days, but you used to see signs up in shops and businesses under new management, but no change of policy. You know, somebody had bought out the business, but they wanted to assure their customers that they wouldn't notice a scrap of difference if they kept coming to that shop. Under new management, but no change of policy. When it comes to salvation, when it comes to what God has done in our lives, it may be under new management, but God has a definite change of policy in mind for us. Paul starts in chapter 6 by, by asking this question. If we are freely forgiven by God, does it matter how we behave, what we do in the future? And he looks at this issue from two slightly perspectives, once in the first half of chapter 6 and a slightly different one in the second half to chapter 6. In the first half of the chapter, he asks this question, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now, suppose the idea behind this is, okay, we all know grace is a good thing, don't we? And please, somebody thinks it's a good idea. I'm sure Matt was speaking for the rest of us. Yeah, grace is a good thing. It must be a good thing. So I suppose some people were saying to Paul, well, if sin is such, if grace is such a good thing, if more people sin, there's going to be more grace about. 
And that's got to be a really good thing, hasn't it? Now, we don't have time to sort of go over what Paul says to that in detail. I mean, you can find the sermon where somebody spoke on the first chapter 6 online on the church website. But broadly speaking, what he's saying is that, well, it's a perverse idea. Uh, In verse 14, Paul says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you're not under grace, not under law, you're under grace. The idea that we should keep on sinning so that grace will increase is an absurd idea. It's perverse. Jesus didn't die so that we could just carry on as before. And some people might say, well, that's okay. Yeah, I agree that's a horrible idea. But in the second half of chapter 6, the part that we're looking at now, Paul raises a variation on that question, and it was the first words that Gillian read for us uh, from the reading. Shall we sin... Because we're not under law, but under grace. I mean, if we find ourselves doing something that's wrong, committing a sin, does it really matter? Is it significant? Isn't it important? I mean, after all, isn't it covered by God's grace anyway? I agree that maybe we shouldn't deliberately set out to do what is wrong, but let's face it, in life things happen. You know, shouldn't we simply shrug our shoulders and carry on as before? If we're aware of some sinful or damaging habit in our lives, should we just say, well, that's the way I am, get on with life. After all, don't we have to be realistic about things? Now, this wasn't academic. If you think about some of the epistles that Paul wrote, you know that these sort of issues were real issues in the churches that Paul was involved with. I mean, if you think to the church in Corinth that he wrote to in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, in the church in Corinth, people were turning a blind eye to what even people who were, you know, completely disinterested in, in Christianity in any shape or form, people who were just ordinary people in the Roman Empire would have described as gross immorality. And in the church in Corinth, uh, people were just shrugging their shoulders and obviously not seeing it as something desperately significant. So Paul wasn't asking an academic question. He was asking a real question that he was dealing with, and perhaps a real question that people are still asking today. Now, what's interesting is that Paul's initial reaction to this question, just as his reaction to the the first question he dealt with right at the beginning of chapter 6, is exactly the same. If you look at the start of verse 2 and the end of verse 15, you'll see that he uses the same phrase, by no means. Shall we go on sinning? By no means. Now, sometimes people tell me that Paul is desperately difficult to understand. You know, well, he's not difficult to understand here, is he? He's not talking in riddles. He's not talking in some dense, hard to understand uh, prose that you need to read several times by moonlight to get your head round. By no means. But having it made clear what he thinks of the idea, he takes a different approach in this half of chapter six to unpacking why this is a, a fundamentally wrong approach to how Christians who have been justified by faith should live their lives. In the first half of chapter 6, Paul takes time to focus on the good things that Jesus has done for those who put their faith in him. In verse 4, he tells us that God has saved us so we can live a new life. In verse 6, he speaks about being freed from sin. In verse 11, he talks about our being alive to God. 
But in the part that we're looking, he takes an illustration from everyday life in the first century, that of slavery, to help his readers understand the issue that's being involved. Now, one thing that's perhaps worth saying right now, that while Paul is using slavery as an illustration, he is not condoning or advocating slavery in any shape or form. He's simply picking up something that everybody, no matter who they were in the city of Rome, would known about. Slavery was the bedrock of the Roman Empire's economy. Everybody knew about slavery. Everybody, for one, you know, in one way or another, had their lives impinged on upon, upon slavery. There was nothing more every day than slavery in the Roman Empire. And because it's an illustration, we need to remember that that's all it is. It's an illustration which helps us to understand an aspect of what God has done and an aspect of what God wants to do in our lives. It's not a complete and total analogy for the gospel. It just helps us understand it a little bit more. It draws out some aspects of the gospel and the good news that may help us understand it more clearly. Now, of course, one of the distinctive features of slavery is that slaves have masters. And in this section, Paul goes on to talk about the fact that, in truth, there are two masters that each one of us can be following. Think back to verse 16 of our reading. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Well, so far, so obvious, that's how slavery works. But Paul goes on to say that in the real life that we find ourselves in, the truth is that there is only a choice of two masters that we can give our allegiance to. Paul goes on to say that we can either be slaves to sin or slaves to obedience. Slaves to sin or slaves to obedience. Obedience to God is what he's thinking about. And you'll see this idea coming up over and over again in this section. There are only two options. Look at verse 19. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity, and the contrast, now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness. Different words are used, but it's the same underlying idea. We can either have sin as our master or righteousness. Now, early in Romans uh, chapter 3, Paul has spoken about the fact that righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who uh, believe. So in a sense, righteousness is, if you like, a, a shorthand for the righteousness that comes through belief in the Lord Jesus. Two masters that we can follow. Two masters that we can give our allegiance to. Two masters whose lead we can follow. On the one hand, obedience to God and the righteousness that we have through Jesus, and on the other, both these are real. They have power. They have real power. And I guess most of us, if we were honest, would be ready to admit that, yes, the mastery of sin has real power. Something that Paul knew personally. Towards the end of the next chapter, he is very open about the struggle that he personally experiences with the, the influence and the power of sin in his life. He speaks about the fact that he knows what is good and he finds it difficult to do it. He knows what is wrong 
And he finds that dead easy. And I could identify with that. I mean, I don't want to be selfish. But I know that sometimes I am. I don't want to think badly of people. But the truth is I do. The reality is that, you know, I don't want to hurt people. Who wants to go around hurting people? But the reality is that my words and my actions sometimes do hurt people. It happens sometimes through weakness. It happens sometimes through negligence. Sometimes happens through deliberate fault. But it happens. And the question Paul asks is, which master are we seeking to obey? Which master are we following? Or are we trying to have it both ways and to serve both of them at the same time? We all remember what Jesus had to say about that. No man can serve two masters. But let's be honest, that doesn't stop us trying, does it? The temptation to keep a foot in both camps can be very strong. You may remember that a few years ago, there was a a very popular and successful play set in Brighton of all places called One Man, Two Governors. It was a broad comedy based on a very old Italian play called The Servant of Two Masters. Uh, And the setup is basically about this individual who takes up employment with two very, very different employers. And, of course, the rest of the play is how this person manages to avoid the consequences of what what, what anyone in normal circumstances, two two P45s. It's played for laughs. But one thing that's interesting about this play is that if you go back to the Italian original, The Servant of Two Masters, do you know why the servant takes up employment with two masters? It's because he doesn't think that one master will give him all the things he wants. The things he wants, he can't see one master being able to give him all those things. And so he takes up employment with the two masters because he wants more things than one master can offer him. You know, we are very hop-happy, are we not, to know that we have God's forgiveness. That God is with us. That we have God's blessing. But I wonder, you know, are there things, as we think back to our old life before we became Christians, things that we think we just can't do without? Yes, we want the blessings of God, but there are things from the old life, and we quite like those too. Perhaps it's an unhelpful relationship. Perhaps it's a damaging habit. Perhaps it's an attitude and approach to our work or people around us or our neighbors that we feel we need to keep if we're going to be successful and survive and do well. And so it is we find ourselves a servant of two masters at least for some aspects of our life. Servants of one thing and servants of something else as well. There are two masters and perhaps the danger is that we are serving both of them 
But, you know, if there are two masters, Paul also goes, goes on to talk about the fact that there are two outcomes, and these outcomes are, are very, very different. If you think back to verse 19, you will see that these two masters ask us to do very, very different things. Again, in verse 19, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, or by contrast, now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. The effect of sin in our lives is negative. And did you notice that it's not static? Paul speaks about ever-increasing wickedness. The idea that bad habits become worse habits, that damaging patterns of behavior become entrenched. And on the other hand, that having Jesus as our master leads to holiness, to being more and more like Jesus, more and more sharing his character and his perspective and his outlook and his approach to things. And as well as having different agendas, these two masters lead to very different endpoints. Think again to the contrast at the second half of verse 16. Slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Allowing obedience to God to be our master leads to righteousness. Allowing sin to be our master will lead to a very different destination. Or go to verses 21 and 22, where verse 22 speaks about the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result? The result is eternal life. The nature of sin is to damage and destroy things. Obedience to sin will result in unfruitfulness, pointlessness, shame, decay, and yes, it does ultimately lead to death, the very opposite of eternal life. It leads to the loss of everything that might be described as good about life. Everything that might be considered valuable about life. Obedience to righteousness, however, results in our being made more like Jesus in our character and our nature and our behavior. And this is perhaps clearly seen in the final verse of our reading. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The outcome of sin is what we deserve. The outcome of following Jesus, eternal life, is a gift. It's not like wages. We don't deserve it. It's a gift because God cares and loves us and wants what's best for us. Two masters, two outcomes. But did you also notice that Paul speaks about there being only one freedom? You know, one of the most striking things about this passage is that even though it uses the language of the slave market, there is a difference of tone about the two masters that Paul sets before us. In verse 17, uh, Paul describes the Christians in Rome as people who used, used to be slaves to sin. In the next verse, he speaks about them having been set free from sin, suggesting that it was something that they couldn't do for themselves. But when it comes to the mastery of Jesus, there is a change of tone. Again, in verse 17, Paul speaks of the Roman Christians having come to obey from their hearts the pattern of teaching that has now claimed their allegiance. The idea is not accepting a master because you have no choice, but accepting him from the heart, a choice that is deeply felt an emotional response, as well as a rational response, and as well as an act of will. 
The pattern of teaching was the message of the good news about Jesus. Christians are people who have heard the message and accepted it from their hearts. The idea is repeated in verse 22. You have been set free from sin and become slaves of God. You know, there are lots of ways in which you can become a slave. But historically, the most common reason to become a slave was to be born one. If your parents were slaves, you were a slave. That's the way it was. Men, women, boys and girls born into slavery. And men and women today are born into the slavery of sin and find themselves under its power. When we put our trust in Jesus, we become dead to sin. We cease to become the property of sin. As Jesus put it in John chapter 8, if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And this is where we need to be careful about pushing the slave market illustration too far. Because while Paul speaks about being a slave of righteousness, it's very clear that being a slave of righteousness, of being a slave of Jesus, is very different from being a slave to sin. Being a slave to sin brings nothing good, only death. Being a slave to sin is the absence of choice. You're driven, you're you're pulled along, whether you want to or not. Whereas being a slave to Jesus brings genuine, true freedom. The freedom to be the kind of person that you perhaps want to be, and certainly the kind of person that God desires you to be. You know, this idea of freedom is very important to Paul. It crops up all over his letters. A couple of chapters on in Romans, Paul says this, Through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Indeed, there's a sense, uh, you can say perhaps, this, see this perhaps in verse 19, that one of the emphases that Paul wants us to take away is to think about how much effort we used to put into doing what was wrong, into sin, and just to think about how much good we could do for ourselves and for our others by following Jesus. And in any case, what's the point of being freed from a bad master just to return to him? What's the point of having been freed from a bad master and going back to him every now and again and letting him have control over your life? You know, you see this people, you see people, you know, who have a habit of making the same mistakes. Going back to a bad master when they have been liberated from that power by faith in Jesus. And that leads us to the final thing that I want to say this morning. Um, here at Bishop Hannington, we often pepper our sermons with quotations from the writings of great and eminent theologians. So I thought I'd bring the changes and bring a quotation from the writings of J.K. Rowling. It's our choice that shows us what we truly are, far more than our abilities. It's our choice that shows us what we truly are, far more than our abilities. The question that Paul asks at the beginning of chapter 5 and again in the middle of, sorry, beginning of chapter 6 and in the halfway through chapter 6 is a very simple question. As Christians, 
As people who've put their faith in Jesus, as people who've been forgiven and justified by God through Jesus, shall we go on sinning? What will we choose to do as we face life's events and challenges and difficulties? Shall we go on sinning? Whose mastery will we choose to follow? That of sin or that of Jesus? Now, the reality is that we may not always be successful in following through on the choices we make. You know, we may choose to follow Jesus. We may choose to wreck sin, reject sin. And the reality is that we may not always succeed. Our ability to resist temptation may prove, well, less than it could be. I think it's why I think that quotation is very wise. It's our choice that shows us what we truly are. Far more than our abilities. Yes, in making a choice to resist sin, in making a choice to seek to follow Jesus in his pattern for our life, we may not always be successful. But it's the choice we make. It's the intention we have It's the desire we have to follow Jesus that shows who our master really is. It shows where our heart is. Shall we go on sinning? The truth is that we may find it hard not to. That's not defeatism. That's realism. We may find it hard not to. But shall we choose not to go on sinning? That's a lot easier. We can all choose to try. We can all make an effort. And if we fail, we can all pick ourselves up and keep going. As Paul puts it in verse 19, we can all show what we truly are, who we are truly seeking to follow by offering ourselves as slaves to righteousness. But we have to choose. And we have to keep on making that positive choice every day, every week, every month. And as we make that choice, God's spirit works in us. And one thing that Paul is constantly saying is that Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit, it's there to help us. We're not alone. We're not by ourselves when we make that choice to be a slave to righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's easy to choose. It's difficult to do things. But Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us the grace to choose righteousness, to reject sin. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to keep on making that choice. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that you promise us the strength and the help to keep following through on that positive choice. Heavenly Father, help us to trust that grace and that promise. Help us to live in the light of it. Amen.